<clears throat> Sorry. This is, a, this is a bad time maybe to announce this. I've been informed by our hospitality team there is not a Kleenex in this church. <laughs> At least not one that we've provided. <laughs> so we may need to divide some fishes and loaves and some purses today. Feel free to hand out as you need to. Um, uh, that was our worship pastor's uh, call to do that gut punch for us all. Uh, no, man, uh, we we would like to just let you know, uh, mothers in here today, we, and gosh, we have a ton of expecting mothers uh, too. If you haven't <laughs> checked out our uh, bulletins recently, we got those too. Uh, man, we just want to say happy Mother's Day. I am so very thankful. One thing that that video so so beautifully portrays is the legacy of faith uh, that a mother leaves. I'll never forget, um, as long as I live, uh, I'll remember coming downstairs every single morning. Without fail, I imagine she still does it, I'm just not at home to see it. Uh, my mom, sitting in her glider rocking chair, reading a, a proverb and then a chapter of some other verse. She loved, the pro- loved Proverbs. One for every month, a chapter for every every day of the month, and then kneeling down by our couch to pray every single week. And when I was in college, I had been displaced. Uh, people, there were people that my, my family had brought on, kind of to help raise, and I slept on the couch. And I can remember her, like waking up every morning that I was at home, and she had laid her hand on my ankle, just praying for me, and. I'm just going to tell you, guys, that there's not a more powerful thing that you can leave dads, moms, for your kids. And the 401k, that'll go away. The, the, the career, the, those, those sorts of things will pass away. But that legacy of faith will remain. So I am thankful for that. I'm thankful for observing that in my bride uh, that I know that my kids get to see. She doesn't get the same quiet time I get. Mine's actually quiet. Hers is far from. I actually told her one day when I was having the quiet time the same time she was, I was like, I would shoot myself. If I had to, if all, every time I went into God's word, it sounded like this, it wouldn't happen. Um, but I, I am so very thankful, and so uh, we're, we're talking about today faith, the ministry to the disciples. Jesus is teaching his followers what it looks like in his kingdom, in this kingdom that I we are that is in breaking. It is grounded in who I am, but it is accessed by faith in who I am. And so we're going to look at today the faith of a follower. It's in Matthew chapter 9, or excuse me, Mark chapter 9. The past two weeks we've been looking inside how Jesus reveals the kingdom of God to his disciples. Last week we saw the transfigured Christ, the glory of God on display for his disciples. That would provide the basis, the theological basis by which they build their entire ideology, the entire ideology of this kingdom that is so alien to the kingdom of this world, the trends and the culture of this world, but would be born out of faith in Jesus Christ. Today, we'll see that functioning within this kingdom 
is going to require great faith. Faith is the greatest thing that we can, the greatest legacy that we can leave. And I just want to encourage you today to give thought to that. We can leave a lot of things. A lot of things to the generation behind us. But there's none more important than a generation, than leaving a generation of faith. So the first thing we see is faith's power. This is Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. It says, When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. In true ministry form, Jesus comes off a mountaintop with his three closest disciples, and the conflict has already accumulated, right? Coming down off the mountaintop, we've all experienced that. We come off of a high-power weekend. We come off of an awesome experience. We come out of a time with the Lord that's just been blessed, and chaos awaits, right? They come down off the mountain, the literal mountain, into the valley, and here they find conflict. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Them being the rest of his disciples. It says, and someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my, my son to you for He has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them. He answered the people. But what he's about to say was not for the people. It was spoken poignantly To his disciples. Now he has called the crowds a faithless generation already, a wicked and evil generation. But listen to what he says to his disciples in the presence of the crowd. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Father, the kingdom you have established centered around the sun of your glory. God is accessed through faith in you. God, I pray if this local body is to be anything, that it would be a body of faith. A faith believing in what you say and acting in obedience to it. Lord, give us great faith to hear what you have for us through your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Jesus comes down from the mountain. The crowds, the problems of the world are already there. His disciples, who he had given authority, Mark chapter seven, or Mark chapter chapter six, verse seven, his initial call to his disciples, he gave them power to cast out demons. All right, so this was something they had authority by God, divinely given to them by God through Christ to do. They were unable to cast out a mute demon. Now, 
what we know, his, uh, tradition tells us that this was a messianic credential. The rabbis had a list. Some were biblically based and some were just teachings of the rabbis that only the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God would be able to cast out a mute demon. The way that exorcisms worked in that day was you would identify the name. Jesus has done that. We saw the, the picture of that when he cast out legion, right? The man from uh, the man that was uh, had uh, many demons, possessed by many demons that was wandering around the graves. Uh, we talked about this in the early part of Mark. To identify their name and then cast them out by name in, in the name of God, right? That was the way that the exorcisms worked. But a mute demon could not identify himself. And so it was taught that the demons that were mute could only be cast out by the Messiah. And so he tells, he, he gets to his disciples, he figures out what's going on. They tell him, look, we don't have the tools necessary. We thought we could heal this boy. We can't. And he tells them a very peculiar thing. He identifies them with the rest of the crowd, the rest of those fans that were, had accumulated. He, he associates them with the rest of the group around them. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And then he comes, he brings the child to him, right? And he talks to the dad then. And we, we won't actually read this in scripture, but you can read it for yourself. He actually talks to the dad. It's where we get that iconic phrase, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. What's the dad saying? He's saying, I believe that you can heal him, that you have the capacity to heal him. He's, he's really identifying him as the miracle worker, as the anointed one, as the Messiah. He says, I believe, help me with my unbelief. What's he saying there? He's, he's saying, he's identifying with the way that we feel at times. My head, my, my head understands, my heart, my head understands that you are, are the Christ, that you are sovereign over my circumstances, that you are sovereign over my trouble, you are sovereign over my pain, but my heart is heavy because there is a daily ramification for living with this that is a hard thing for me to bear. Watching my son go through this struggle over and over and over again has caused me to doubt God's goodness in my life. He's saying, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. It's as if he is saying, God, there is a problem in this crowd. There is a problem, obviously, with your disciples. And there's a problem in me that is hindering the healing of my son. Lord, Address the faith within me so that then, unhindered, I can, we can minister to the needs of my children. Man, do you know why I want to be where I need to be with Jesus? Because it's, more than, it's about more than just me. And I'm not talking about a church. Yeah, yeah I understand the ramifications for that, especially as pastor. But I've got three little brains that are watching everything daddy's doing. And I'm going to tell you, there's, a time, there's times where I act outside of faith, outside of obedience to God that is a hindrance to my kids. So God, I believe your goodness. But man, when things are going wrong, when chaos is happening, help me with my unbelief. Help me to live a life within that is unhindering the gospel to my kids. 
that is unhindering the goodness of who you are. May they not see a distortion of your goodness, your glory, and your grace because of the actions of their father. This is the prayer of this dad, right? And we know the story. We know what happens. He, he heals this child, right? He, he heals this son. He, he, initially, he exercises this demon. The demon is, flees from him. And then he falls lifeless and he raises him back up. Listen to what it says in Mark 9, 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and he lifted him up and he arose. Remember, he's already addressed his disciples. And so even though this was done very publicly, this was intended for the disciples. And so they have a debrief afterwards. And when he entered the house, his disciples came and asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? Why could we not cast this demon out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now we can dismiss that as, oh, oh, okay. So we need to pray. And then if we would have just prayed before, we would have done that. Here's the problem. We don't have any gospel account of Jesus praying before he heals this kid. None. What does that say? Jesus' message is not about, hey, you need to pray first and then you can heal them. Jesus' message is about a lifestyle discipline of prayer that is completely foreign to his disciples. He is living a lifestyle of prayer. The message is not about the miraculous. It's about the very ordinary closeness with the Father. You see, Jesus had an intimacy with the, with the Father through prayer, through communication, through spending time with him. Other gospel accounts include fasting in this. That he had a closeness that his disciples did not have. This one only comes, this, this only happens. This demon is only cast out when we recognize who we are in Christ. It's a message of closeness. It's a message about the ordinary disciplines of growth in the body of Christ. Listen, let me free you from something. You will never be perfect. You'll never be perfect. Doesn't mean you can't be. It means you won't be. As a child of God, you don't have to sin. Don't let someone tell you you have to sin. As a child of God, you don't have to sin. Sin is a reality But it's a reality of our flesh. It is not out of compulsion. All right? You don't have to sin. You will sin. The beauty of never being perfect is that we're off the hook for that. Christ is our perfection. So what does God require from us? What's he teaching his disciples? It's closeness. Though the disciples were all about making a big public show of these great public hearings. By the way, that didn't just happen in Jesus' kingdom, in the the kingdom of God. This happened in Judaism. These high-ranking rabbis would come and they would make a big public show of this uh, exorcism. And everybody would give glory to God. It was this big show. And what Jesus is saying is, look, you won't find lasting faith in the big show of things. You'll find it in the daily obedience of things. 
You'll find it in the faithfulness of being who God has called you to be in private instead of just what happens in public. In fact, it's the private ministry of Christ that would provide substance for the public ministry of Christ. The disciples' failure was not entrusting that the boy could be healed, but failing to depend entirely on God to provide the healing. They were doing it under their own power. They liked the fact that they had been given some special power. It was from God. They, they completely disregarded that, and so they didn't rely on that. And so they went to cast out this demon on their own power. What's Jesus saying? The only way this demon is, is taken away from this child is through closeness with the Father. It's through intimacy with him. It's through his power, not your stinking own. Why did he say what he said so harsh? Oh, faithless generation, you're putting your faith in the wrong things. You're putting your faith in your privilege, not in who you really are. This was a a pill that was not easy for the disciples to swallow. The problem with this is that we don't... And, and, so, and so in your notes, the disciples' failure was not in trusting God for the extraordinary, but trusting God in the ordinary. Where you lack is not in the big show of things. Man, you can get up and peacock around all you want. But is there substance behind your connection? Or do you have that form of godliness and deny the power? Paul David Tripp, in the book that I'm taking our leadership home group through, says that prayerlessness is always a result of putting credit where it is not due. You want an idea of how humble you are? You want an idea of how much faith you have? You need to to look at the amount that you spend in prayer. The amount of time that you spend seeking God. Because if that is not happening, you are not relying on his power. You're relying on your own. What does Jesus say? In my kingdom, it will be of the faith of the ordinary, not the miraculous, that's going to make a difference. The disciples' failure was not in trusting God for the extraordinary, but in trusting God in the ordinary. Now, this was awkward last service because my wife was in the room and she doesn't like this kind of stuff. I want you to know it. Proverbs 31, 28 says, Her children will rise up and call her blessed and her husband will praise her. And she hates this stuff. I told her it was going to be a little uncomfortable. But now she's in the preschool, so I can say what I want. I want you to know, I learned a long time ago, a very interesting way. There's a story that I'm not going to tell you. I learned through a very interesting way, the greatest advocate I have on this earth for my ministry is my bride. And it's not for all the things that I saw her doing. It's for a lot of things I didn't. This stack of books right here is what it looks like every morning. Actually, I I see it in the afternoon after my wife has done her quiet time. Can I just say that a number of books stresses me out just to look at, all right? I'm more of a bare bones kind of quiet time guy. Um, but she uses God's word, gets into God's word, has a daily quiet time in case she's tracking something in Leviticus, and let's just say application's a little harder to come by when you're talking about how to deal with, like, excrement in the camp, like that, okay? Um, 
She has a, a devotion book. She has a, con- a commentary, Tony Evans, which I would recommend. There's also others, Warren Wiersbe and some others, um, that gives her clarification on these things. And then she journals. Probably the coolest thing. This is actually what I found. I, I did not know she did. And I found, although she does it in what I would consider an annoying way by putting random decorative tape on pages, uh, this is her journaling. You know what this shows me? I know my wife's not perfect. I've worded that differently last service, unfortunately. I think I said she's not perfect at anything. Might have been (laughs) probably not the best wording of that. I know my wife's not perfect, but that's not what she's called to. She's called to progress. Do you know what this stat reminds me every time I see it? That my wife isn't just dedicated to make a public show of faith, but she's leaving a legacy of faith that's legitimized through her private disciplines. Not the miraculous, not the extraordinary, but the ordinary. God, I would die for you. The problem with that is, Maybe God might call you to die for him at some point, but the dead sacrifice has been made. Jesus died. We are to live. We are, Romans 12, a living sacrifice. And don't for a second think if you are not willing to live for him that you would be willing to die for him. It's the ordinary faith that legitimizes the extraordinary. So are you a person of faith? I'm not done talking about her. It is Mother's Day. But there, that is such a comfort to me, and not because I'm a pastor, but because I love God and I know that she does too. And I know we're in this together. And it doesn't matter what you see or don't see. Secondly, faith prioritized. We see faith's power Jesus said, through the ordinary faith of being obedient to him today, of praying, of seeking him, of seeking God's power, because there's no power in ourselves, this is how faith's power comes. We see faith prioritized. This is the lesson. This is what he's telling us. This is what he's showing his disciples. This is what's not happening. This is the disconnect here, fellas. Verse 30, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. So he intentionally got away in such a way that the crowds couldn't follow because he had a special message for his disciples. Special word here. Big, big lesson. Listen to what he says. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. This is the second of three in the passages that we will read in this part of this series in the book of Mark. The second of three. He alludes to it more times in this, that he clearly states his death, burial, resurrection. The passion of Christ, the victory over death, hell, and the grave. He makes it very clear, and it's only for his disciples. He intentionally made it so that just his small group of guys would hear about his death, burial, and resurrection. But they had other things on their mind. Listen to what it says in verse 32. 
But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So instead of asking him, instead of continuing this thought, which Jesus would have more than happily explained, they decided to talk about something else. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, Hey, fellas, hey, boys, what were y'all talking about? What were you discussing on the way? And if this isn't a group of men, I don't know what is. But they kept silent. One proof, they're men. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Well, I don't know if you saw Thaddeus. That dude you healed, I think he still had a limp. I think, yeah, okay, he could walk, but he, he was limping a little bit. My dude was flossing, right? Like, he's, he's completely healed. Obviously, I'm greater than you, right? No, hang on. Hang on, Peter. Listen, uh, you didn't see what I saw, right? And then they're, they're, they're just comparing who's the greatest, right? It's the typical testosterone, competitive spirit. But Jesus, listen, how inappropriate, how inappropriate of a conversation is it to have after Jesus has just explained to them, taking great lengths to explain to them specifically what would happen? Listen to what it says in verse 35. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all. He was really asking, who lost that, who lost that debate? Who was the one that was by far not the greatest? <laughs> you win, right? If you want to be great, the question is not how great you are. The question is how insignificant are you? This is the kingdom of the world turned on its head. Not greatness by position. Greatness by servant. Who is the greatest? Can there be a more inappropriate conversation to ignore than someone telling them about their telling you about their upcoming death? Listen, I've been given this diagnosis from the doctor, and it's not good. I have this in my life, and more than likely I'm gonna die from it. How inappropriate would it be to gloss over that and to start talking about where you're going to lunch later? That's but that's what that's what these disciples are doing. How inappropriate. Is it to have a conversation about who is the greatest when your posture as a disciple is to be a follower, not a leader? You are to be a follower of Jesus. How inappropriate is it that his followers are talking about who is the greatest? But even if we excuse all of that, Jesus also alludes to how this will happen. He says something here that he doesn't, hasn't said before. He says that he will be delivered. The word literally means he will be betrayed. He will be handed over. He's not only telling them about what will happen, he is telling them that one of them will do it to him. The method in which he will be killed will come at the hands of one who would betray him. One that was so, in fact, concerned about his power that he would betray his Savior. He would, he would betray the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver to gain and grasp some little 
power in this world, he would miss it. Because it's not about who's greatest, but who is a servant of all. And we look at them and we go, what jerks? Can you imagine having that? Can you imagine you got Jesus in the flesh? You got God with skin on, walking with you, leading you somewhere, and you got the audacity to make it about yourself. Man, if I was with him, I would have listened. I'd have figured out. I may not have understood immediately, but I'd have figured it out because I care about what Jesus had to say. Do we? Trusting in God's agenda means the abandonment of our own. To put faith and confidence in what God has for us requires that we forfeit the agenda that we have for us. You know what I see when I look in the world today? I see a lot of people leaving a legacy of a lot of things. I see a legacy of wealth, a legacy of success, a legacy of popularity. I had a parent one time whose child they knew and I knew was in a relationship where sin was going on, in a romantic relationship where sin was happening. They were going too far in the relationship. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. And they came and they sat in my office. And you know what they, we talked about? That relationship, which had been going on for months, had begun to affect grades. They were more concerned with the academic failure of their kids than the spiritual depravity of their children. This is the world we live in. As long as there is not fiscal ramifications, we'll let it slide. We are not of this world. Or we are. And we just fool ourselves. With some great delusion. What legacy are, are we leaving? We would look at the disciples and say they're jerks. Yet we've been entrusted with a gospel that has everlasting ramifications. But that's the one thing that we don't have time for at the end of our day. Well, I didn't get around to talking to my coworker or my loved one or my family member. I didn't get around to sharing Jesus with them. Now, I got around to going to Starbucks. I got around to making sure I, was working, I worked out today. I got around to practice. I got around to the game for my kids. I got around to school. I got around to my career. But man, that one thing that God has given us to do, it just didn't happen. Y'all, we are missing the point of a prioritized power. We have faith that has to be prioritized. You've heard me say we're not going to live the Christian life on accident. It will not happen. It takes an intentional effort. And so what are we leaving? Moms, what are you leaving? Dads, what are you leaving? God doesn't want to bring salvation to you. But he, he doesn't just want to bring salvation to you, but he wants to bring salvation through you as well. That's kingdom agenda.
And as long as that's not on your agenda, you can't say that you're living in humble obedience as a follower of Jesus Christ. Studies show that less than 10% of believers will ever share their faith with any person. Less than 10%. We've got to get on board with this. To say you're a follower of Jesus and not look like Jesus is delusional. But giving priority to God's kingdom means making it the ruling factor in the decisions that you make. In fact, I would say if you're trying, if you hear me talk about my wife in her quiet time, I would tell you that if your job is, man, I want to do that. I want to give 15 minutes to the Lord every day. I want to fit him in somewhere. I'm going to do that now. If you stop there, you've missed it. The moment we get in the headspace that I need to fit God into what we're doing is the moment when we miss our priorities. The question is not what am I doing and how can God fit in. The question is what is God doing and where can I join him? That's Henry Blackaby, Experiencing God. I wish it was me, it wasn't. He thought of it first. Figure out where God's moving and join him. What legacy are we leading? I will say this. One thing that ministry has taught me is my schedule a lot of times is not my own. And then it requires a lot of sacrifice of time and effort and energy. I know that I'm called to that as a pastor. Can I tell you that I see it in my wife as well? There are so many sacrifices she makes because she recognizes God didn't just want to save her. He wanted to save through her too. And so she's willing And let me tell you, she's the planner. And if you're the planner in the room, you know what it's like when your schedule gets thrown to pieces. Now, me, it ain't no problem to change my schedule because I never had one to begin with. Will can tell you that. (laughs) She works with me. But my wife is willing to make whatever sacrifice. And I'm so thankful for that. To put her needs lower. To be a servant of all. Finally, we see faith personified. He gives us some object lessons. Like I like to do, he gives some object lessons. He takes the child. I don't, I don't know what the situation was in this. This is one of the funny things that I think about when I study God's word. Like, I don't know where that kid was. I don't know if he ran and got that kid or I don't know if the kid just randomly walking by and he's just like, yerk. You know, like, uh, I don't know. I don't know if there was a security team member that was close by that was making, yeah, I don't know, I don't know. But he takes a child and puts him in the midst of them and taking him into his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. It's a child, right? This was a lesson of opportunity. Hey, listen, let me tell you what all of you people have neglected. As you are listening to me, as you're doing other things, you're, make, you're chilling out, you're hanging out. This child has been walking around here. Let me tell you, and the kingdom of heaven is like this child, right? That you are missing opportunity. The reason why you have missed it is because you don't see value as God sees value. You have an opportunity to invest in this child, not because this child will do anything. In fact, in Aramaic, the word for child and servant were the exact same word. They were the exact same word because they were viewed the exact same way. Just like a servant can't dictate his own terms and is solely dependent on his master, a child is the same way, a picture of innocence and vulnerability and helplessness. 
And so they were almost delegitimized in that culture. But he said, listen, he said, this child, look, look at this child. If you receive this child in my name, you receive me. It's not about the greatest. The wisdom, the conventional wisdom of this world would tell you to associate with those that can advance you. Hey, I went, y'all, I'm official Elkmontian, all right? I want you to know I'm official. I know that because I went to a Boss Hill goat stew, all right? I ate goat stew. I didn't like it. So chicken stew, I ate some of that, and I did like that, all right? I went to the stew. You know what I saw at the stew? I saw a lot of folks. You know what I also saw? I saw a lot of folks I don't normally see. I saw a lot of politicians. Why were they there? Wasn't it? it's, an, it's a political year, right? It's election year. They're there to associate with people that have the opportunity to advance them. I'm not saying that's a problem. I'm not saying that's wrong, right? Like, I know they've, they've, they've got to do that in the position that they're in. That's not wrong. And, and in fact, I know many people that are running for office are very high-character, godly Christian men and women. And by the way, that's who we should vote for. But that's the conventional wisdom of this world, right? Everybody knew that they would be there because their constituents are there. What Jesus is saying it's not so much in the kingdom of heaven about you hanging out with people that can advance you as much as it is hanging out with people that will never advance you that only you can advance. It's about affecting and infecting and affecting people in your sphere of influence that maybe nobody else can reach that may never be able to repay you for anything that you've invested in them. There is a purity in ministry to helping one that will never be able to reciprocate that help. It's humility. Why? Because we recognize who we were. We were just as needy, just as hopeless. And maybe we've always had money, but we hadn't always had Jesus. And when we recognize who we are in light of who he is, we see people differently. We assign value differently. I'm thankful that right now my bride is about 100 yards away. 50 yards away, it's a smaller building. It's <laughs> thinking a little bigger. Maybe one day she's 100 yards away. Uh, serving in a nursery, serving in a preschool with kids that won't ever thank her. But she's doing it because it's not about her. That's the beauty. That's the thing about ministry, man. If, you're, if, we're, if we're in this to advance ourselves, we will be poor ministers. In fact, We'll be counterfeit ministers because <laughs> we'll be advancing self, not advancing kingdom, not advancing Christ. Who are we investing in? Because it wasn't just a child. Then a stranger comes up. John, John is trying to shift the focus. Hey, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves, and we need to switch gears here. He is on us. He's already called us a faithless, faithless generation, right? He's gotten on to us for not caring for this kid that's been in our presence this whole time. Uh, let's switch gears, right? This is a ministry of objection. One was opportunity. The child was opportunity. This was objection. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons. I need some street cred with Jesus right now. So I saw somebody casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. He was just casting out people by the name of Jesus. He had no association with us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for one who does a mighty work in my name. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. 
For the one who is not against us is for us. Now, he also says somewhere, he is not for me, is against me. And these seem to be counter. But what he's talking about is perspective. For those within the kingdom of God, there is nobody, there, we, they are not against you. Here is the problem with John's mindset. It's one word. Look at verse 38, the end of verse 38. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. He doesn't say, Jesus, he wasn't following you. You called us all to follow you. And I'm just a humble servant of yours, and I recognize that he ain't following you. And I needed to address it. No, what he had begun to see is that he was someone worth following. John had the audacity to believe in his own power that he was somebody worth following. He wasn't with us. He wasn't following me. He didn't do what I said. He was someone, he saw himself as someone of position with man, not his posture before God. In your notes, Christ's disciples are called to trust more their posture before God than their position before men. Man, I could compare myself to some people and I'd feel really good about myself. That's not the comparison God's called me to, to make. God's called me to compare myself to a holy God that I have no business associating with, yet he associates with me in spite of me. That's humbling. Y'all, I hope to goodness you're not at this church because you see me as someone worth following. Because if you do, you are only setting yourself up for failure, my friend, and disappointment. I hope that you're here because you see a God worth following. You see a God worth being obedient to. And you see yourself as I do, just a lowly servant for him. This is the kingdom of heaven. Remember where the gospel found you. The gospel found you at your worst. And God desires for you to associate with those. Not so that they can advance you, but so you can reach them. This is the kingdom. Purchased in Christ's blood. So alien from this world, of course the world's going to see a difference. faith of a follower. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? We'll enter a time of invitation and if you have never responded to the gospel, I know this message strikes a chord in me. I know it strikes a chord in others that have know they have a relationship with Christ, but I want you to know if you don't have a relationship with Christ, and you are missing the vital ingredient to experience life. And Christ has called us to abandon ourselves. He has a plan for you. It's not your plan, and it's going to mean dying to your agenda. But what he has in store for you is greater than you could ever imagine on your own. That's a promise in God's word. 
You know why? Because great is his faithfulness. He's faithful. But he has called us to die to ourselves. So if you're here today and you recognize that you don't have a relationship with Christ, you recognize in this room that you have sin that has separated you from a holy God. I want to call you to repentance today. I want to call you to make a decision to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Let him, make, let him change you. Let him transform you. Do a new work in you. Make you new. That's what he offers through his grace. Not because you deserve it or I deserved it. Because he sought to serve. He made a way to bring salvation to you. So if you're here and you need to receive Christ, I would pray that in this response, when I say amen in just a moment, we're going to all stand to our feet. And the stakes are high. People are watching. I get it. Would you be obedient enough to God to care more about what he thinks of you than what man does? Care more about your, your posture before him than your position before man? And would you come receive life in Christ? Hey, maybe you're here and maybe you know that you have that relationship. Man, your life has been about a lot of things, a lot of agenda that is not godly. It's not divinely motivated. Maybe you need to come and you need to lay some things down. And you pray and intercede for someone that you know needs this relationship with Christ. Maybe you need to join what God's doing here at North so that we can help link arms with you to make a difference. We are called to be humble servants, meaning we don't dictate the terms. Only he does. Would you come? Father, have your will and way in this place. Pray for some that need to make a decision for you, God. I pray they would find this center out. They come and talk to me about how they can know that they have hope that's found in you. Whatever decision needs them, if you've drawn them, this whole service, to this time of decision, I pray that they would respond to it. I pray they would move. Lord, we believe. Help us with our unbelief. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing. We thank you for the legacy of so many mothers and fathers in this room that have left legacy of faith. God, I just pray that we'd be right with you. Whatever that looks like whatever that means in this time of invitation. We love you. Let us be obedient to that love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? We're going to sing. This is your time to respond. You can find a spot here at this altar. It's open for you to pray. You can find me here at the front. If there's any decision that you need to make today, I would invite you to come. On this Mother's Day, I'd invite you to come do business with the Lord.